0: So yeah. So the second, the second thing was to make sure our, our faith was visible. Uh, the, the genuineness of our faith was on display as contrasted to, uh, against these false teachers. Uh, and we saw that right off the bat in 1 Timothy 1.5 where he said, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Um, and so then t- chapter 2 and 3 got very practical and gave us these guidance, uh, you know, like what should the church do in light of that. And, uh, and today Paul is going to step back and give us the why. Why do, should we do this? Which, the why is really important. The why, if you have a good reason why you are doing something, it changes how you go about it. Um, and I'll just give you one example from my own life. Um, as a teenager, I, I took the hunter safety course, as, as all West, Virginia, West Virginians do when they start hunting. And, the, you know, I, I learned proper, proper gun safety. But one of the bad habits I had was forgetting to, to put it back on safety. Like, so, if, so if we're doing a drive, uh, you know, my dad would sit me somewhere and he would you know, walk through the woods, kind of scare the deer, and I would take it off safety because I think I hear something, and I, would, I wasn't, I knew I should, but I would forget to put it back on safety um, for a little while. And then I'd realize, I, and then I'd put it back on safety. Well, that came back to bite me one, one uh, day when we were out hunting, and after a drive, it was over, I didn't see anything, but uh, I thought I heard something, so I took it off safety. And then, so we're standing around and, and my hand my hand is, is like this, holding, holding the gun, pointing at the ground, and it just kind of slips a little bit. And I go to grab it, and as I grab, I, I grip it, I pull the trigger. And I, I shoot a, a hole in the ground next to my boot, probably three inches wide, it looked like, like right next to my foot. It, it easily could have been my foot. And I just sat there and I shook, right? And so as a, as a, as a kid it, it, taking the hunter safety course, I couldn't wrap my brain around the importance of gun safety. But that moment, I understood the why. I almost lost my foot. And then from then on, I had never had a problem remembering to put the safety back on, right? Because I know the why. I understand it. I have, as soon as I think about it, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with fear, right? I have a good reason why. And now it changes how I go about it. I, I, don't, I don't forget. I don't forget. And so having a good reason why changes it. Right? It makes a difficult task doable because you, are, you know why you're doing it, why it's worth the effort. And so today, Paul gives us the why. And so we read that in 1 Timothy 3.14-16. through 16. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttler, buttress of the truth, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So let's pray before we continue. My God, I need you this morning. I don't want these to be my words, Lord. I pray they're your words, that you are doing a work in this room that you would speak through me to your people. These are your sons and daughters. We are your citizens. And I pray that you would do a work in our hearts as we, as we gathered today, Lord, to draw near to you. I pray that you would, uh, you would change us. Let, the, let your word sink deep into our hearts and minds and, and renew us and change us and conform us into the image of your son. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in verse 14, we get the Paul's reason for writing, and he says, I hope to come to you soon. So he has this desire, he's like, I, I, like, I want to come and see you in person, but so far I've been delayed, but, and I'm, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I'm writing these things and sending them ahead of me in case I'm delayed further and I'm not able to get there. These things are too important not to, to, to get to you. Right? These, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And that's the instructions that he's been giving us, right? And this complements 1 Timothy 1.5. In 1 Timothy 1.5 where he said, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Paul's saying that is the goal, the mission, the charge of our faith is that we would be overflowing with love from a changed heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. But how do you do that? What does it look like in the household of God to to do that? And that's what he's writing. He's he's, How do we do that as a church? How do we put that on display? How should one behave in the household of God? And so it's been very practical guidance. So the the question now that Paul's going to answer is not really how to do that, because he's been discussing that. But why? Why should we do that? The why. And he gets that there in verse 15. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He gives us three reasons why this matters. Have you ever had someone try to explain to you something you just didn't care about? You just, I don't see why it's important. Why do I care about this? Right? And so Paul doesn't want us to haphazardly do this. He doesn't want us to begrudgingly do these things. He wants us to know why it matters. Why do we do these things? And so we're going to take them one at a time. First is the household of God. We are the household of God. And this can mean two two different things. That word household... Is used throughout scripture to reference to two things. More often than not, it's actually referring to a physical house, a physical dwelling. But it also can be in reference to the family that that belongs to that dwelling, right? So I really think it's best, since scripture uses it in both cases, I think it's best to take it to mean both, right? We belong to the household of God. And the first way we we belong to the household of God is that um, we are all individually and dwelled with the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God, and that is a huge deal. Anyone that's read the Old Testament can, uh, can attest that, that God went into great deal, especially with the tabernacle, man. God went into great detail in how to, to, to construct the tabernacle where his presence would be. And then he went into great detail on, on who could enter and what they should do in this place where his spirit would dwell, right? And the closer you got to his spirit, the more strict it became. Like, for, the, for example, in the, the outer section was called the holies, but the inner section where God's presence dwelled was called the holy of holies. And Hebrews 9.6 says that these preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that being the holies, performing their duties. But into the second, that being the holy of holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking uh, blood, which he offers for himself and for the, for the unintentional sins of the people. So he went. So only one guy, once a year, could enter the presence of God, and not but first before having a sacrifice for his own sin and for the sin, the unintentional sin of his people. So when we say we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, I feel like sometimes we take that for granted. That's a huge deal. And it has implications on how we should, should live as people, right? When, and, and, when, and when God's, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, right? And he, and he said, it is finished. The earth shook and the curtain in the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Showing that, signifying that his spirit was no longer uh, confined to the Holy of Holies. It was, it is in every single believer. And it has implications, And one of them being 1 Corinthians 6.18, where Paul says, "'Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are to glorify God with our body.'" But this goes further. It's not just an individual thing, but it collectively we make up the household of God. And we see that in 1 Peter 2 5, where Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Each one of us being a living stone, we are built together, forming the spiritual household of God. Ephesians 2.19 puts it this way, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There it is. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In, whom you, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by, for God by the Spirit we had this heritage handed down to us where Jesus Christ was the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets they laid this foundation and then 2000 years God has been building his church and we are the latest uh, the new construction right we're the new construction the latest layer in the in the in the in the building of God's church and now it's up to us will we keep God's temple holy how we conduct ourselves speaks volumes on the holiness of God's temple, right? We are God's temple. We should should, uh, come come together with pure hearts and, and with genuine love for one another. Holy means to be dedicated or consecrated to God, set apart for God. Are you set apart for God? What does your life look like? When someone looks at you, do they see you as set apart for God? Are you glorifying God with your body? You are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Let's make us make sure that we are living in a way that that is honoring to the Spirit that lives in us. The second way that this household of God plays out is that we are God's family. Each of us having been adopted into the family of God. God is now our Father. And we are all now brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see that in Galatians 4, 4 but it, when uh, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We were adopted into the family of God. John 1:12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children, of God. We are family. Are we acting like it? When we come together, when we interact with one another, and not just, I think there should be a special family within these walls of Emmanuel, but every other believer out there is also our brother and sister in Christ. How are we interacting with them? God calls us to, put a high emphasis on caring for one another in Galatians 6 10 he says so then as we have opportunity let's do good to everyone so we should everywhere we should go we should be doing good to everyone but he says and especially to those who are in the household of faith and that household is the exact same word from Timothy right the household of faith we are to have a special deference for those that are in the household of God So yes, we should should be doing good to everyone, but but first and foremost, inside the family of God. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus said, if if you don't take care of your your own house, you're you're worse than an unbeliever. If you don't take care of your own family, even even unbelievers do that. And this is our family. And then Jesus says something crazy in Matthew 25, 40. He says, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, As you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus said, the least of these my brothers. Jesus is our big brother. He is our big brother. That's huge. We are in the family of God. And Jesus says, take care of the least of my brothers. And when you do that, he says, you're doing it as if you're doing it to me. I, I accept that as an offering to me. And so we have a family here at church, and Emmanuel, and it should change how we live. And Satan, Satan, is so uncreative. All he can do is counterfeit, and we see counterfeit. Um, families out in the world like you'll see organizations pop up around some kind of social calls right where they they do these good good deeds and they come in they they're accepted in that community and they it feels like a family and and satan does that because he makes these these churches that aren't churches you know like these these places where people can feel this sense of family and, and a purpose because he's mimicking he's imitating what we genuinely have here in the church and so we need to live in a way that shows them that what they've got's a fake knockoff right what they wants here in in this church because we have the real deal and so this is our first reason why we should care to listen and put into, uh, into action what we learn in Scripture. As, we, as you come in on Sunday and you hear a sermon, or whether you're studying the word at home, this is, this is the first reason that he gives us that we should care. The reason why we should put into practice these things. Because we are the temple of God, and we together collectively are the family of God. And we need to show the world that that means something. The second reason he gives, he said, which is the church of the living God. And I love that. That's, a, that's an Old Testament name for God, and I love it. The living God. And, we, and, we, and it's in the Old Testament. One example of it is in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, where it says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation the living God. I love that because it contrasts our God with every other God that that, that man has invented for himself, right? Where people have worshipped inanimate objects or at best demons which are fallen angels and still not God. We worship the one and only true and living God and that should matter. That should change things. And he says that we are the church of the living God. That church is, is an assembly, right? We are an assembly of worshipers of the one true and living God. Many claim to worship gods. But they're inanimate objects. They have no life in them. We worship the true and living God. And there should be a difference. That should make a difference in how we go about our, our worship of him. And I think that, that it, it plays out in two ways. One is that it should give us a greater affection, a greater devotion to our God, the living God. Because we serve a living God. He's more than, than man-made. He's more than anything we invented. He is greater than us. And we should have greater devotion. Because we serve a loving God that desires a relationship with us, right? He adopted us into his family, as we just described, And so our love and devotion should be greater than those that serve idols or demons or other created things. They serve something cold or lifeless, but we serve a loving, caring God, King and Savior, who loved us first and pursued us even while we were yet in open rebellion of him. Luke 6.15.3 says where uh, Jesus gives this parable. He says, "What What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep that was lost. It's just so... I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus says that God pursued the lost sheep. That's us. We were in open rebellion. We were the lost sheep running from him and he came and pursued us. That's the living God. He pursued us. Luke 19.10 10, 10 says, For the Son of Man came seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save us. We could not save ourselves. We were lost and in open rebellion. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed, shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't ask him to. We didn't pursue him. He pursued us and died for our sins and to offer us salvation. And he pursued us. Culminating in in 1 Peter 2 9, in this statement, which I love, but you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. He called you, he chose you, are a chosen race, a people for his own possessions that God deserves a greater love, a greater devotion than the cold, lifeless things that are worshipped out there. So the living God should motivate us to worship him with a greater love, affection, and devotion. But also, the fact that we serve a a living God should give us boldness in all that we do. Boldness because he is a living God. There is power in our living God. And always, anytime I think of boldness, I think of Elijah immediately. He, that's where my mind goes. Because he challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to, to see whose God was better, right? They had a God off. Let's see who, who, whose God is better. I, that's bold. I mean, That's bold. If God didn't come through him, it's 450 to 1. I think he's going to lose if God didn't show up. So he had some boldness. He challenged them to both build altars and call upon their God to send fire to heaven to, 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 to light the offering. And he was so bold that he begins to mock the prophets of Baal. I love it. In 1 Kings eighteen twenty seven, it says, And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. You know, maybe he's on a journey, and he has to wait for him to get back. Or perhaps he's asleep and you need to waken him, right? I mean, this is bold. He's mocking them. It's, it's bad enough that he called them out, but now he's actually mocking them, showing them the silliness of their faith, their, 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 their God. And, then, and, so, they, and so in, their, in response, it uh, continues in, 20, in verse 28, it says, and they cried out aloud and cut themselves with, uh, after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out from them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of of the uh, oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention because they served a fake God, a non-living God. There was no one to answer them. There was no one to answer them. Elijah is still bold. He goes further. He says, he says, I want to make it harder for my God, so come dump buckets of water on my offering. And so three times they dumped buckets of water on the, on the offering. And then when Elijah prayed, this is what happens in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The living God answered. He answered because he is a living God. And, and I and there are many, I mean, many, many bold men in scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, bold. You know, Daniel refusing to, to stop praying and facing the lion's den was bold. There's many bold men. But the reason why I like Elijah is because of James. Because in James, speaking of the power of prayer. James says in chapter 5, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James is telling us, That Elijah was just a man. There wasn't anything special about him. Like a lot of times we look back at these heroes of the faith and we say that man, there was something special about him. He was a great man of God. And yes, he was he was. God did great things through these men. But here, James is saying that Elijah, there was there was nothing unique and special about him. He had a nature just like ours. The special thing wasn't Elijah, the special thing was the fact that he served a living God. That's what made him special. And and James says that we have access to that living God in prayer. And we can be bold. We can be bold. We serve a God who has the power to aid us in our struggles and enable us on our mission. So the fact that we serve a living God should motivate us to be bold for him, to make, take risks for him, to step out in faith into scary situations that we would not normally step out into because we know that our God is a powerful, living God. So how is your love and devotion for the living God? Are you pursuing him with great affection? How is your boldness for God? Are you stepping out in faith and to serve him in ways that, that might scare you? outside your comfort zone, but there is power in our living God. The third reason he gives us is he says that we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. <clears throat> pillar, I kind of understood what that was. The pillar is, is you know, like if you go down in, in, in the fellowship hall, you got those beams in the middle of the room, right? It's a pillar, holds up the roof above us. I had to look up what a buttress was. I'm, I'm not a structural person. I don't know what a buttress is. A so buttress is, is uh, in, in old uh, structures, they had these, these bricks on the outside of the wall that came off almost like a, like a support for the wall to hold the wall up from the weight of the, of the roof above it so that the wall didn't buckle out, right? It was on the side side of the building pushing up against the wall. And so both the buttress and the pillar's job is to uphold the weight of the roof right? It's, it's a great, important job, right? You don't want to be in a building where the, the, where the pillar and the buttress fail, right? It's, a, it's an important job that they have. They uphold the weight of the roof. And, and, and Paul um, uh, is saying here that we, the church, uphold the truth, right? It's our job to uphold the weight and the truth of God's word, what he has revealed in scripture, Especially the, this mystery of the faith, uh, which is Jesus Christ. We guard it and we uphold it. I think we do it in two ways. We do it, as, as, as uh, Paul has been saying, by defending it. We uphold the truth of God's word by defending it. And that's what he's been instructing Timothy to do, to stand against false teachers and false doctrines. And we see a greater description of this in Acts 20, 28, where he says, Be careful, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock." in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So there will be people, even that come from our own midst, that will try to twist this to, to draw some, some of us away. And so we are to, to hold the line we are to defend the truth. And this is one way that we uphold the word of God is by defending it. It has been entrusted to us. It is an important job of the church. The second way we uphold it is by sharing it, right? We, God says that we are his ambassadors uh, as, as though God were making his appeal through us. So it's, it's, it's one thing to, to defend this against other people, right? Just to say you're not allowed to take this and twist it. But if we don't share it, what good is that? If we lock this away in a vault and share it with no one, yeah, we've protected it, but we've convinced no one of its truth. We didn't share it. And so we are called to share it, uphold it by sharing it. And we do that first by proclaiming it. Romans 10.14 says, And how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Someone must articulate the gospel and share it with people. That must happen. All of us are called to be, like, like that preaching makes it sound like it's just for uh, the, the pastor. And that and then obviously that pastors have, bear more responsibility to do the, the like, preaching. But all um, Christians are called to be the ambassadors of God. As if God were making his appeal through us. Every one of us should be telling people about Jesus and convincing them of the truth of his word. But I think part of proclaiming it, part of sharing it, is exemplifying it. And I think that's, that's been what Paul's been getting at through this book of First Timothy, uh, is that our genuineness of our faith should be on display in our character, right? That's why he goes into great detail for the character qualities that must be present in a pastor and in a deacon. We must exemplify it. We must put this on display. And this makes perfect sense. If you say you have found the, the key to weight loss, right? You're like, I have found it. I got this easy easy solution for weight loss, but you're overweight? Do you think someone's going to listen to you? Or well, maybe it's, it's a financial. I have found the success to become rich. and, and you'll know, Come listen to the, how to get rich. And you're poor and in debt. Are right, so someone going to listen to you? And so in the same way, if you say, I have found hope, joy, and peace, in the, and the forgiveness of sins in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you look no different from the world, stressed out, lack no joy, no love, no one's going to listen. We need to put, exemplify the scripture, exemplify it, put it on display, the truth. Show it that it has power to make a difference in our lives. That's why Matthew five sixteen, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They should see the light they sh- in us. They should see these good deeds and know, that recognize that there's something different about us. So we uphold the truth of God's word by showing its power and its effectiveness in our life. And this is a huge responsibility. Just like it's, you don't want the, a, the, a pillar to, to fail while you're in the building and, and the roof fall in on you. You don't want that. It's a serious job that you hope that that pillar does its job. This is the job of the church, to uphold this truth, to defend it, to share it, to exemplify it. So what do people see when they see us? When they see Emmanuel, when they see you, what do they think about Christianity? Do they see the light coming through? Do they see love overflowing out of you? Do people want what you have? That's what it comes down to. If someone told me they, have, they found the solution to become get rich quick and they're in debt, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to give them a moment's notice. right? I don't want what they're selling because it obviously doesn't work, and so we need to exemplify this, put this on display, so when we share it, people already know us, and they're like, I don't know what you got, but I want it. I want what you have. You got joy that makes no sense. You got peace in circumstances where you shouldn't have peace. How do you do this? Let me tell you. Let me tell you about my God. And then he says this truth. He talks about this truth, this mystery. He says great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed. This he's expanding on what he on one of the qualifications he gave for the de, uh, as deacon. A deacon he says in 1 Timothy 3:9 must hold the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. So he's going to expand on this mystery, this truth that we're upholding. He's going to put it into words. And what follows is most likely, uh, most commenters think it's, it's a early church hymn, right? It's, it's, it's an early church hymn. And it's a concise description of the gospel, a summary of the, of the gospel. And he, and he starts off and he says, he was ma- manifest in the flesh, he being Jesus, was manifest in the flesh. Philippians 2, 4 says, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He became man. God entered human history in, as man in the flesh, That's, oh, that's crazy that God be, entered his creation. He became part of his creation, took on flesh. And then where he, he, he was obedient to death on the cross, Philippians 2.8 uh, 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 goes on to say, he became obedient to, point, uh, to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so then he goes on and says, says that he was vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels. He's referring to the resurrection, right? Ephesians 1.18 says, "...having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that, we, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in, uh, in the heavenly places." far above, above all rule and authority and, and, and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He was raised from the dead and seated at, at the right hand in heavenly places, seen by angels, witnessed by angels. It says he was vindicated, he was justified because he was unjustly found guilty and, 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 and died a sinner's death, Right? And he was vindicated. He was justified in his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven, where he, there won't be a second death. He had to ascend back into heaven. and he ascended back into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He was vindicated. Philippians 2:11 says, and, and uh, Philippians 2:9 says, "Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. "'in in heaven and on earth and under the earth, "'and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ "'is Lord to the glory of God the Father.'" Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Those people that crucified him, that unjustly found him guilty, all those that set themselves against Jesus to say that he was just a man or a a, a liar because he claimed to be God, Everyone who has set themselves against Jesus will bow, will kneel, kneel before him, and, and, procl- uh, t- and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is vindicated. And then it goes on to say that he was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Jesus, before he left, gave the, this, the, his disciples the great commission to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they took it seriously. They did that. Jesus Christ died for all people of every tongue, of every nationality, and they took it and they shared it um, among the nations. And the preaching was effective. It was effective. They believed on him in the world. Uh, God did a great work from the very beginning where uh, at Pentecost where 3,000 souls were saved and the church started with an explosion of people. And then through the persecution uh, of the church, it spread. And then for the last 2,000 years, God has been building his church. And he is still actively building his church today. He's growing his kingdom. He's saving souls. And we are his, this legacy, Emmanuel. We stand on all the believers that came before us. The work that God has done of the, of the proclaiming of the gospel among the nations. And people believing it. And then they themselves proclaiming it. And others believing it for 2,000 years. That is our history. And we get to continue the work. And then he ends with something that seems a little out of place. He says, taken up in glory. He rose from the dead, never to die again. He had to ascend back into heaven, and he was seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory. And it seems a little out of place, because everything else seemed to be building. Like this, this summary, everything else seemed to be a progression, like he was building. But then all of a sudden, taken up to glory, well, that happened earlier. Like that seems kind of out of place. I think the best explanation is that it's referring to our participation in his uh, his glory. John fourteen three says, "And if I go, I prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." Jesus says, "I'm leaving, but I'm going to come again. And I'm going to take you to be with me." So we will ascend uh, with to be with him. And the crazy thing is, is that not only that, when he um we get to participate with uh, with the with his death. And his glorification, right? It says in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we share in this. What an amazing promise of scripture that we will share in his glor- glorification. And we will be taken up to be with him. This, of course, only applies if you have made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And so if you've never done that, do not wait another moment. Now is the time. God is pursuing you. But it is a great a great mystery, this great truth. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. This is a great great weight. And that's why it's so important, the work the church does of upholding this truth. We uphold it, we defend it, we share it, we convince others of its genuineness. It's a great responsibility. And so as we kind of sum up the takeaways here, Paul has given us three very practical, important reasons why, why we should care, why we should care to put into practice the things that we hear on Sunday or, or the things that we read in Scripture throughout the week. We are the household of God. We are the, we together form the temple of God, his dwelling place. So let us be a holy place, place of love. And then we are the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God, let us act accordingly. Let us show a great importance to be put on, on these relationships here in Emmanuel. Let's make the world jealous that they're not part of this family. Second is that we can be bold because we serve a living God. We know his power. He is able to do mighty things. And that should give us boldness. And we should serve with greater love and devotion because He is a living God that pursued us in love. He pursued us. And finally, that we are, we as the church are the pillar of the truth, that we hold this truth. It's been given to us and we uphold it. We defend it. We share it. We convince others of its trustworthiness. We do this in word and deed. We must articulate the gospel when we share it. But our testimony must match it so that there's some evidence to it. There's some believability to it because they see it at work in your life. So I hope this morning that you have found a a reason why. Something that motivates you to not haphazardly go about your Christian walk. But to to give it more uh, intentional focus. to, To be more passionately devoted to God. Knowing why you're doing it. So let's pray. My God, I pray that you have done a work in us and that you're still doing a work in us and that you continue to do a work in us this week. Lord, I pray that you have lit a fire under us, that we would be excited to be a part of your kingdom, excited that that we are part of your family, that you pursued us and we are your sons and daughters and you are a living God. There's a genuine relationship to be had here. And I pray that motivates us to, to, to better serve you, to, to be bold and to, um, to, to get into your word, to hear from you, and then to go represent you better and to be excited about it, not begrudgingly, but that we get to, that we get to do this, that we are part of this 2,000 years of church history, this legacy, and, 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 and we are the latest, and, and it's up to us to see if the legacy continues here at Emmanuel. Let us get excited about this. I just pray that you continue uh, to work in Emmanuel as, you, as I, we've seen you. God, I, we have seen you, and I praise you for it, Lord, that you have done great things here at Emanuel. And I, I thank you for it, and I pray that you continue to do that far into the future, generations into the future. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to take up communion. Brad, Mike, would you guys come forward?